my point is that definitely more renewable energy means more uh, energy security, particularly for Europe. Meet Andries Pibalgs. He's been recognized as one of the key figures in the creation of EU's renewable energy policy. This is Net Zero, a podcast by the Florence School of Regulation about the energy transition and climate change. I am Joana Freitas, and in this series, I'm inviting myself into the minds of some truly insightful people with very different perspectives. Today, we are joined by Andris Pierbags, former Commission for Energy and currently Florence School of Regulation professor, to discuss how renewable energy is changing global geopolitics. Andris, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting. So, according to Irina's recent report on the geopolitics of renewables, For the last 200 years, the control of oil, natural gas and coal, as well as bottlenecks in global sea routes like the Strait of Hormuz, have shaped the world's geopolitical landscape. But now the majority of researchers considers that the in the next 30 years, renewables will actually overtake fossil fuels in most geographies. Which countries do you think stand to gain and lose with this shift? And what do you see as the main consequences of that? Well, I think um, uh, the change will bring uh, forward the nations that invest a lot in research and development. So that means that each nation has a chance if it's not late in this uh, process. And I think um, it's particularly important for fossil fuel rich countries because now they definitely finance a lot of social programs, but not invest too much in the uh, new technologies related to renewables. So as a result, they could have been late for this transformation. Uh, where we see already is a win, okay, winner, not but um, the one country that definitely gains. Um, or global influence in energy area, it's China. China has invested massively in renewables, in uh, energy transport, and uh, that uh, gives them a lot of knowledge and also a lot of experience and technologies that they could sell to the world. So I believe that is a good example that the nation that is not uh, known too much about high tech uh, is actually very much moving in energy field. So that could happen with these other countries as well. I believe the most difficult transformation definitely will be in Russia and Saudi Arabia, because it will be very difficult domestically to change the pricing for fossil fuels. Um, let's take Russia. Gas domestically is priced by far more or less than it is for the global markets. So it will be very difficult to make a transition that, uh, well, basically the price should correspond to the global market prices. Also in Saudi, they make now this IPO, now new development for Saudi Aramco, but it would be good that the new Saudi Aramco, after this uh, uh, shares going also public, they also in start to invest in renewable energy because that's where the future is. I wanted to zoom in on the situation of oil-rich countries that you're mentioning. Now, today, 80% of the world's population still lives in countries that are net importers of fossil fuels, which, of course, has given significant power to, to these countries that control the world's stock of oil and gas. And of these, Gulf states in particular are very exposed to, to a reduction in the demand uh, for oil. How do you think this will change the power dynamics of the region and the Middle East? Do you think that as oil-related rents diminish, we may see 
some social and political unrest fueled by, for example, raising youth unemployment in that region? Well, I think it's too much a direct link is being made in recent times between energy prices and unrests. Let's take our example of Chile. As a small increase in public transport provoked uh, wild protests uh, in the streets. And uh, it was definitely not related to this increase. It was just the last drop that actually um, made public anger uh, visible. So I think it would be wrong to connect this energy transition and protest movements in the country. If you don't address uh, problems, then, well, um, definitely a reaction to increase in energy prices uh, will always be there, but it will not be toxic and it will not be of the scale that paralyzes the country. So for me, I think uh, if the countries change the strategy, and the strategy in the next well, 20, 30 years should be to achieve carbon neutrality everywhere, and uh, invest in new technologies. And that created new jobs, new employment opportunities, new income for social systems. So I, I still believe that if you have right policies, you can move and make the transition rather easy. And for Middle East countries, well, they start to invest uh, in renewable energy. It is uh, Emirates mostly, but um, but I expect that uh, other countries will follow it because uh, having so much sun, definitely you can produce a lot of electricity on a rather cheap basis from sun. And additionally, you can use also electrolyzing and export, uh, well, uh, hydrogen or you methanize uh, the hydrogen. You can produce relatively clean fuel as a gas. So I would say there are business opportunity in existing niche. And um, that should be used. What will change these countries mostly? It is uh, the consumer patterns. If Europe will go massively for electric vehicles, then definitely these countries also will uh, be encouraged to make reforms. If Europe will stay, well, somewhere in between, there is not enough drive for these countries to invest for new products to the market. So in a way, understanding that Europe is not the biggest uh, part economically anymore in the world, uh, we have uh, this opportunity to trigger things also in other countries because they will definitely follow what consumer wants. And if consumer wants clean fuels, well, they will find technologies how to produce clean fuels. And you can, well, make carbon capture and storage or carbon, carbon capture storage and uh, use and storage. So you have the different technologies. But I think it's big consumer re regions that decide. And Europe has really announced very ambition uh, for climate neutrality by 2050. So we need to show that how we adapt this to the realities. And that will influence also Middle East. Let's focus now on Europe. Um, Europe is dependent on Russia for natural gas. And this was very, very clear when in 2009, Russia cut off its gas supply to the Ukraine, affecting consumers downstream in, in Europe. With the rise of renewable energy sources, Europe should lessen this dependency. But then China, that you're mentioning is a key winner in this transition, is on the other hand, the world's largest producer, exporter, and installer of all the technology around renewables like solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, and electrical vehicles. Do you think the energy transition will bring more energy security to Europe, or are we in fact just changing from one type of dependency to another? 
No, I think uh, it brings more security because fossil fuels are very clearly geographically located. So with technologies, you can always develop alternatives. And well, if somebody is asking too high price for the technology you develop on your own, and there will be always competition in technological field because that's a field that you can't just put geographically in one place. So that I think is a lead time. But that there is more yeah, but that is more yeah. That's logical. That uh, mm-hmm. everybody will try to bring down the cost. It's true mm-hmm. that we started with solar panels, but Chinese made the cost lower. So, so we we lost this uh, opportunity to be big producers because we have not moved so quickly. Or if there was a dumping, we should have reacted with our trade instruments faster. So, for my my point is that definitely more renewable energy means more uh, energy security. Particularly mm-hmm. for Europe, uh, the latest Eurostat data shows that we have increased all type of fossil fuels imports. So that means that for us, deploying of uh, renewables massively actually is definitely very good for energy security. So that's not even questionable. So we don't go in new dependency. It's quite opposite. We really are transforming our society where energy security. Uh, worries are slightly different so that you have enough power in the network. So it's a bit slightly different. Energy security will be always issue, but it will not be related if there is some conflict in some part of the region where are fossil fuels that influence the global world and Europe as well. So we are moving away from such a type of dependency. And also what is true, fossil fuel markets have changed with LNG being our now very liquid market. That's definitely also gives some, some advantage for energy security. So if I compare with my uh, time as an energy commissioner for 2004-2010, with situation today, we definitely have by far more energy security. I wanted to explore the topic of access to materials. Renewable technologies and batteries require certain minerals for their production, such as cobalt, lithium, and rare earth elements. And these tend to be geographically concentrated. For example, over 60% of the world's cobalt supplies come from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And China, on the other hand, also controls a significant part of the global supply of earth minerals, even though they're not necessarily rare. Do you expect to see uh, the emergence of conflicts generated by the race to control access to these critical materials? And which regions do you see as most vulnerable? And what are the consequences for Europe in particular? No, I, I think this is... a. Uh... False uh, argument about the minerals, because basically minerals are rather widely spread across the world. Uh, and then if you start to play a, a supply of one mineral, you don't develop alternative. Perhaps it's a bit more expensive, but then it gets cheaper. Plus, on top of it, uh, you can recycle. So, and as if we are moving more in circular economy, you can recycle things. It's again costs, but it's good for the society. So I don't see there are any risks. I know that some uh, NGOs look on these issues and say that there are risks, but I think they see the risks that in particular countries, there is a risk that elites capture this rent and, um, uh, and will not somehow 
spread widely for the population and particularly also to the people who are living in, in uh, near the minor uh, areas. And I think that is important to look on these issues. But I don't think that we are moving in new type of dependence. At least I have not seen any convincing report that there are real risks. On cybersecurity, yes, there mm-hmm. are risks. On, well, electricity trade, you can argue that there could be some risks. But on minerals, I don't see it uh, as a real risk. I think it's a bit uh, it's a bit artificial, and it's also a bit related, a bit of arrogance toward Africa, because Africa is supplying, so Africa should be problematic. And I think it's not the case, because to supply to the market, uh, they will supply, and uh, the only issue is working condition in the particular countries where they produce these uh, minerals. But uh, mm-hmm. geopolitically, it's not a risk. Oil has, has been linked to some significant um, either direct or proxy conflicts in the world. Do you think that the energy transition as we move away from a world which is dependent on oil will in fact be a source of peace in the world? In principle, yes, because we have... a. Uh, the main issue is, again, not about energy. We have a challenge with water. We could have a challenge with food. And with climate change, the pattern is that the areas that already are now with very high temperatures uh, exposed to us will be even higher. So, And there will be less rain. And the areas where I live, it's north of Europe, will have more rain. We have already plenty of rain. So we will have even more. So there is a, some type of... Uh, uh, huge risks for access to water, access to food. And that's definitely something we need to take into mind. And if you have renewable energy, you can use desalinate water. You have by far more opportunities really to respond to most to real issues, to real necessities of the people. So for me, it is definitely brings more peace. But I believe it's crucially to look upon this transition period because it's true that more spreading of, of renewable energies decrease the rents, lower oil price, lower gas prices for classical fossil fuel producers. And they use this money that we pay for oil and gas to buy our goods. So that, I think, is, is something that needs to be looked upon, how the trade flows will change, and there should be a mechanism that somehow help like global adjustment funds. Let's talk about the role of grids. Uh, as energy sources became dominated by renewables, they will be more local and regional, which together with decentralized power production will increase the importance of electricity grid infrastructure for national security. In Irina's report, it is argued that just like oil embargoes were used in the 1970s as a foreign policy instrument, perhaps interstate electricity cutoffs could now be used in the same way. What is your view on this? How do you expect this new reality to shape the relations between Europe and its neighboring countries, namely Russia, Middle East and Turkey? Well, I think uh, each country will until now, very much look upon its uh, electricity security of supply. So the imaginations that there will be a lot of common electricity systems is rather courageous. Even in the EU with uh, network codes, we still have a lot of things to do to really use the power of internal market. So I, I don't believe in the nearest future it's an issue at all. But in, even in longer future, uh, whenever you establish electricity systems, it should be on the same rules, I mean, as the codes, and you could just can't cut off 
because you influence your own supply as well. So I doubt that this is a real issue. And uh, there are synergies if you combine more than one market, but EU definitely is a leader and we still need to really to export our experience to other parts of the world. I don't know if you're familiar with the Doomsday Clock. So the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists of Chicago University created the Doomsday Clock in 1945 to communicate the likelihood of a nuclear apocalypse. But they have now also added climate change as a major threat to humanity. In their 2019 statement, they set the clock to two minutes to midnight, the closest it has ever been to doom, um, the same as in 1953. And they list the achievement of the 1.5 degrees of global warming as one of the key achievements that would make the world safer. How do you see the role of climate change in creating political instability and conflict globally? Oh, it's very clear that climate change perhaps is a biggest uh, challenge that mankind has, because I think nuclear war risk still exists, but it is moving as a less of a probability. But climate change is definitely happening and the global actions need to be made. Uh, I believe that strong statements help to mobilize public opinion, even if sometimes they are perhaps too strong. Uh, um, at the same time, you can say, well, climate change happening, uh, we can't imagine all the consequences. But what we know now, uh, it's very painful consequences for a lot of parts of the world with uh, change of food supply, water supply, climatic conditions. So that's definitely need to be addressed. And I believe that they basically are right addressing climate change is the biggest threat to the uh, mankind at this stage. To end our interview, I'd like to ask you some rapid-fire questions that you can answer with one or two words or take a wild guess. Zero Carbon Europe by 2050, myth or reality? Reality. The future of storage, batteries or power to gas? Both. What year will see the last internal combustion engine vehicle sold in Europe? 2040. What will the percentage of power generated by prosumers be in 2050? 15%. The main challenge for utilities in the next decade is? To adapt a business model to provide energy services and consultancy. And our final question, do you believe that the Paris Agreement goal of keeping the increase in global average temperature to well below 2 degrees, or indeed at 1.5 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial levels will be attained? And if yes, by what date? I think it, we should stick to this goal and we should stick to the dates that we have also committed ourselves. I know it's difficult and progress today is not going in the right direction, but uh, we should not abandon it and we need to strengthen international peer review mechanisms that uh, countries that committed to achieve this goal also deliver. Andres, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, John. Next time on Net Zero, so we can see CCS that it provides a bridge between the reality we are still having right now and certainly the need for urgent emission reduction. Thank you for tuning into Net Zero. You can catch new episodes, subscribe, and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts.